In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is now the second week in a row that our gospel readings have featured John the Baptist. Although he cuts an odd figure, right? I mentioned this at the start of the service. He's clothed in camel hair, tied up with raw leather. I mean, this is not a nice belt, okay? We'll just start there. He's eating grasshoppers, actually more specifically locusts, which I think are just like grasshoppers, but really nasty, huge ones. He's eating wild honey, and he is singularly obsessed with preparing the way of the Lord. And he is the main personage of the season of Advent. More than Mary, more than Joseph, more than baby Jesus. John the Baptist is the main character in this time in the church year. Outside of these walls, though, could you say that you have heard his name mentioned as part of this season? You're probably not going to find John the Baptist in the greeting car aisle at Walmart or Target or Cashwise. The baptizer's seasonal greetings don't sell very well, right? When embossed onto cardstock and, you know, little gold foil, you know, like, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Reminds me of that uh, little scene from Home Alone 2. Not Home Alone 1, Home Alone 2. You know, the, the, the kid, Macaulay Culkin, I can't even remember his name in the movie. Anyway, he's got the TV playing. And like Tim Curry and the rest of the hotel staff are like, oh, wait, you know, he's talking to us. He's, and it's this movie. It's this kind of old gangster film. And this voice on the TV is like, hold it right there. And then it's this whole thing. And it ends with Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. That's a little bit more John the Baptist speed. Okay. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath of come? You snakes. You brood of vipers. Right. He's calling people to repent, which necessarily means... He's calling out all kinds of sin in their lives. And John ends up, you might recall, being imprisoned because King Herod um, had his brother's wife. It was kind of a gross thing going on. And John, right, this was after Jesus had started his ministry. So John wasn't preparing the way for the Lord anymore. So now he's just back to calling out horrible, wicked stuff in the culture. And he says, uh, hello, guys, what are we doing here? That is not okay. And he gets thrown in prison for it, and he ends up losing his head for it, right? This was his mission, calling people to repentance so that they would be ready when the Lord would come. But the marketability of Advent uh, is not really something we in the church are that concerned about, ultimately. We are concerned with placing ourselves under the waymaker or the forerunner, the baptizer. You know, he's got a lot of titles you could use for him. We have a spot just for us under that microscope of his. Fleming Rutledge explains this for us. She says this, the extremely odd thing about Advent, in spite of its reputation as a season of preparation for Christmas, maybe I should turn the lights off here on the Christmas tree. That would get us more in the mood, huh? I won't do that. Is that its emphasis really does not fall on the coming, right? In Latin, that's Adventus. Okay? It doesn't fall on the coming of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem, but rather on the coming of Jesus as the judge of all things at the end of time. 
The overwhelming presence of John the Baptist in the lectionary in this season drives the point home. His announcement of the imminent arrival of the Messiah comes 30 years after Jesus' birth and is intended to summon the people to repentance and preparation for Jesus' adult ministry. John does not proclaim Jesus as a captivating infant smiling benevolently at groups of assorted rustics, potentates, right? That'd be the, the three kings, the wise men, and farm animals, right? That's not what John is concerned about. Jesus, he's, he's coming, and remember he was a cute little baby, and everyone gathered around him in the manger scene. That's not what John is concerned with. Instead, he cries out, one is coming after me that is mightier than I. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That ends that quote. And yet, if you look at the third candle of our Advent wreath banner, it says what? Rejoice. I guess I should have specified third from the left, right? Watch, prepare, rejoice. And we've got a special little color change here. This candle is pink, rose-colored, maybe is the technical term for that. So if the theme of Advent's third Sunday is rejoice, where are we to find that in John the Baptist? How, do, how does this all square and resolve? Well, it's right here in John 1, 8, and 9. John the Evangelist, different guy than John the Baptist, says this. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. As Christians, we rejoice not because John the Baptist is a figure that inspires rejoicing. Hanging around with this guy was probably like hugging a cactus. Okay, this is not very pleasant, not very nice. You never know what he's going to call you out on this time. I don't think John is the kind of guy who would take a suggestion to lighten up. You know, I don't, I don't think he would handle that well. And I don't think you would handle well what he would say after that, you know? But John was not the light. We don't have to find John very captivating. We don't have to feel like, man, I wish I could have hung around with that guy. John was not the light. He knew he wasn't the light. His joy didn't come from pretending to be the light. It came from telling about the light so that all of us, 2,000 years later, would have that light shine into the darkness of our lives. That we would be called out of darkness into his marvelous light, the marvelous light of Jesus who has redeemed us. As Christians, we rejoice because the true light who gives light to everyone is coming into the world again to drive darkness away. All four evangelists, we're going to work into this a little bit now, Saints Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they mention John the Baptist early on in their gospel. Yet the four evangelists, they emphasize different aspects of John's ministry and his person, and you know, they record different things that he said. It doesn't all read, you know, it's not like if you, read, if you read one gospel, you've read all four of them. It's not the way this works. Today's lesson is from the gospel according to St. John, whose gospel is already kind of the weird one. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they correspond pretty well to each other. Mark is kind of like an abridged Matthew, you could say, and Luke is like Matthew, but written by a doctor. As a, as a shorthand, right? So Luke explains all the particular things that were wrong with people that Jesus healed, for example. 
Well, John, his, his gospel doesn't really run parallel in the way these other ones do. And to the point, John is the only one who records these words of John the Baptist. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? He came right out and said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet you're expecting. I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The the Jewish leaders, here's what's kind of interesting about this. They almost certainly knew who John was. Because John was the son of Zechariah, who was on duty in the Jerusalem temple, right? When the angel came and announced that, you, you know, you and, you and Elizabeth are, are pretty advanced in years, but you're going to have a son, and he is going to be the greatest of all born from women, and he is going to prepare the way of the Lord. So, I mean, this, John was not a stranger to them. So they come out and ask, who are you? What they're actually asking is... Um, are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? Like, what's, what's all this about, John? Um, he had this powerful ministry of preaching and calling people to repentance. A contemporary historian says that 300,000 people went out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. 300,000 people over the course of his ministry. So, yeah, the, the religious authorities are trying to figure out, like, okay, what's going on here? Do we need to be worried about this? Is there going to be some kind of uprising? Who are you? What are you claiming to be? What are your intentions? Uh, you know, can we, can we keep this under control somehow? Do we need to intervene? The reason they ask if he's Elijah is because in Malachi chapter 4, the prophet says this. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah, who had been, you know, Elijah, did, he had this powerful ministry, and then he didn't die. He handed over his, man, his prophetic mantle to Elisha, And then this chariot of flames, right, came down, and Elijah rode on up to heaven. So he was one of these guys who didn't die, so he's, like, still alive. And in Malachi here, it says, look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The coming of Elijah as a forerunner to the great day of the Lord, of of the Lord's wrath and of his final salvation of his people. Those were like, okay, so John the Baptist, he's got this powerful ministry. Everybody's coming out to be, to, to, to repent and confess their sins and turn their lives around and all of this stuff. So uh, John, are you seeing what we're seeing here? Are you Elijah? He says, no. So they ask him, are you the prophet? Capital T, the, capital P, prophet. This is another important figure back from Deuteronomy. This is when Moses knew his time of leading the people of Israel was coming to an end. And so from, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says to Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. They were terrified because the actual visible presence of God was there on the mountaintop. And the people of Israel, that was kind of too much for them. So they said, Moses, uh, this, this is too much. We need somebody to go between us here. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Well, Jesus was from among their brothers. 
but they thought before Jesus had kind of come on the scene, maybe, maybe John is this guy. Are we, is he the one? Is he the prophet? What does John say? Still not me, guys. I'm the one Isaiah spoke of who would call out for everyone to prepare the way for Yahweh's arrival. And there's the joy of John the Baptist, the principal figure of Advent. These aren't joyful days because of anything peculiar to John. And I mean John no disrespect. By the way, Jesus said, among all those born of women, none is greater than John. So I'm not going to stand up here and disparage John the Baptist. I'm just trying to paint a vivid picture of him for you. These days aren't joyful because of anything peculiar to John. They're joyful because of who John was pointing to. As we began with a quote from Fleming Rutledge, let's end with one from her too. I said at the beginning that the Advent spotlight was on John the Baptist, specifically on his preaching. Now it's time to revise that description. John is the model Christian preacher and witness. By the grace of God alone, all Christian preachers stand in the line of this strange, unattractive man. Thanks a lot. The spotlight, you see, is not on the preacher. Nor is the spotlight on John. John himself is the spotlight. Have you ever seen a spotlight? Probably not, unless you've been backstage. You don't actually see the spotlight. What you see is the beam of light and the object that is illuminated. John himself disappears. His preaching is the beam, and its light falls upon Jesus. Yet even this simile fails us because, as the fourth evangelist writes, there was a man who came from God. His name was John. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. This is Joy Sunday, Rejoice Sunday, not in the fantastical, magical fairy type way. Any kids out there? Have you seen this, these Trolls movies? Right? There's glitter everywhere, and they're happy, and they have hug parties, and everything is great and happy and felty, and, you know, it's like, it's like a 90s fever dream um, with Justin Timberlake singing, you know, uh, which may still be a 90s fever dream. So are those movies for the kids, or are they for us? Uh, anyway, anyway, this is Joy Sunday, not in, like, the, the little kids movie, hooray! you know, fairies and magic and, and, and everything works out in the end and, oh, everybody's nice to each other and, we, you know, like that's, that's a kind of a false joy that's manufactured by escaping from our reality. We're going to create another place to go to for 90 minutes or so and that's going to be nice and that's going to, you know, maybe lift our spirits or get us into kind of a good mood but we can't stay there because that's not real. Our joy this Sunday comes not from us escaping our reality, but from the one who came to us, died for us, and is coming again very soon. We can heed the Apostle Paul's admonition to always be joyful because all of our trials will soon be over. Just a little bit longer. And then never again. We will be rescued from the cares and anxieties and heartbreak of this age. 
Let's remember that this is exactly what Jesus came to do for us. A lot of times we use the shorthand, Jesus came to die for me on the cross, right? Yes, that also, there are a lot of other components to that. Jesus, this is the words of Jesus here from Isaiah 61 in, in, in prophecy. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Why? For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released. Brothers and sisters, you might not feel like it in this moment, but you are captives. You are brokenhearted. If not now, then you were, or you will be, because this world is infested with sin. There's sin within us. There's sin out there. We need to be saved from it. Jesus has been sent to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. Not his enemies. For those who mourn because of sin that you've committed, and the Holy Spirit has brought you to lament that, if you're mourning because of sin committed against you, if you're mourning because this world is messed up, God is going to come back and handle your enemies. He's coming to do work for you. Which Advent hymn speaks the most of rejoicing? Let's think about it for a second. Rejoice. Rejoice. It's the most famous and well-loved hymn of this entire season. It's my daughter Elodie's favorite hymn. I think. What is it? O come, O come, Emmanuel. Every stanza of that hymn, if you got a hymnal in front of you, open it up, 357. This is the last thing we're doing. You can follow along here. Every stanza of this hymn is an acknowledgement that our reality is not what it ought to be. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. That sounds a lot like Isaiah 61. Those people that Jesus is anointed in order to bring good news to and to set them free. Captives, those who are mourning. We are captive to our sin and we are mourning because of all of our losses. That's what we acknowledge in stanza one. Stanza two, we are in disorder and we are ignorant of how to enjoy creation according to God's intent. I'm summarizing these. I'm, I'm going kind of fast. Stanza three, God revealed his will for our lives in ancient times. We've had a long time to figure this out and we still cannot get it right to our detriment, to the detriment of those we love. Stanza four, we suffer the effects of Satan's tyranny as he is still powerfully ordering the forces of darkness in war against us. Stanza five, instead of walking the path to our heavenly home, we so often tread down the way of misery. Stanza six, the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows threaten to block out the light of life. And stanza seven, you would think with so much misery from our sin and so much common shared suffering, we can at least come together and unite, right? Misery loves company. We can kind of 
stand shoulder to shoulder, lock arms, and, you know, we're going to get through this. Yeah, you know, you're right, we are. We can, we can keep going. But no. Right? Bid thou our sad divisions cease, is what we're asking for, because we are at each other's throats all the time. We divide, we draw battle lines, we choose sides, and we fight wars. Either hot wars, out in the open, angry, mean, flamograms to each other in the email inbox or in the text thread or whatever, or cold wars, where because of something that happened, you haven't spoken in a long time, and things are kind of frosty, and it kind of seems like that's just the way it's going to be now for good. And yet, what happens after every stanza? The church that acknowledges all of these things and asks Jesus, please come and fix this somehow. What do we sing? Rejoice. Rejoice. The joy of this Sunday, the joy of this season, not baby Jesus in a manger. Again, I'm not a Grinch, I promise. That happened already, and the time to celebrate that is coming, I promise. It's coming soon, next week. But... The joy of this time. The joy that lets us not try to explain away, not try to stuff our feelings down, not try to ignore the hurt or the pain or the sorrow or the grief, and to still somehow rejoice is that Emmanuel will come. He is returning soon. With the church from all times and places, our cry goes up, come Lord Jesus. And until he does, we always rejoice, not because our circumstances call for it, but because the hour of our deliverance draws near. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.